and begin reading in verse 11 and read verse 12 together. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. During our last study, we observed the great contrast John provides between Gaius, who was a fellow helper to the truth, and Diotrephes, who acted in a manner contrary to the truth and contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw the testimony of Gaius in verses 2 and 3. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. Then verse 5, Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom, if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. So in the testimony of Gaius, we saw several things. First, his soul prospered. We saw truth was abiding in Gaius. Gaius was abiding in truth. The church testified of Gaius' demonstration of charity and the church testified of Gaius' commitment to further the truth. And then last week we looked at the testimony of Diotrephes in contrast to that testimony of Gaius in verses 9 and 10. When he says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. So we saw several things concerning Diotrephes as well. First, John testified that Diotrephes desired to be preeminent within the church. Second, John testified that Diotrephes rejected him and his epistle, although John was an apostle, as we know. Third, John testified that Diotrephes spoke evil against him, prating against him. And then John testified that Diotrephes rejected others who spoke the truth also. And then John testified that Diotrephes cast brethren out of the church who would receive those who spoke the truth or those who lived and walked in truth. And the verb preeminence we noted last week means wish to be first or desires to be first. And so as I mentioned, for one to desire preeminence is for one to attempt to exalt oneself in the place of Christ. For it is Christ alone who's preeminent in his church. As Colossians 1.18 tells us, Paul writes, And he is the head of the body, being Christ, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, or in that in all he might have the preeminence, or he might be first. So John, having warned Gaius of Diotrephes and his pernicious ways, which he has already done, John now progresses in this brief epistle with both a further word of warning as well as an, a further exhortation to Gaius. As John does many times throughout these three epistles, he makes a contrast between a positive and a negative, and then provides a clear and concise statement concerning the evidence which one's life produces about the statements that he is making. So look at verse 11, for instance. Beloved, he says, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. So here you find the positive and the negative. He that doeth good is of God, but he that, he that doeth not, or doeth evil, hath not seen God. So you see this contrast that is made. So let's look at the first word. We're going to break this, this verse down. He says, beloved. Now, John uses this word beloved four times in this epistle. And the first is translated well-beloved in the English. 
but it is a translation of the same Greek word. So there's four times he mentions beloved, but one of them is translated well-beloved, and that's in verse 1 when he says, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Then verse 2, beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. Verse 5, beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. And then verse 11, beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. The Greek word translated beloved, and it's the same word well beloved in verse 1, is agapitos. And it's a form of the word agapago and also agape, and which is often used in reference, as you're aware, you're more familiar with the term or the word agape, which is used in reference to God's love as explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Remember, in 1 Corinthians 13, and we even looked at this, I believe, this past Sunday morning, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, people have taken this passage of Scripture totally misunderstanding its connection to chapter 12 and even following even in chapter 14, for that matter, and they fail to understand when Paul says that they are chari- you know, desire the, the best gifts. However, I show unto you a more excellent way. And then in verses 1 through 3, again, Paul makes the statement, if a man do all of these things yet have not charity... And the word, the statement have not is possessive in nature. So Paul is not saying if you do not act in charity or you do not do charitably. He says if you have not charity, then all this is in vain. And then we understand that by the description given in the following verses of chapter 13, that Paul is not talking about a love that we're supposed to imitate or mimic or produce, but rather this is a love which God has demonstrated in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13, Paul makes it very clear that if you have not charity, and he explains this more excellent way, he says in chapter 12, the last verse, I show unto you a more excellent way, and then he begins to talk about... um, Though I spoke in the tongues of men and angels, and I have not charity, it's a sounding brass and tingling cymbal. And he goes on to talk about, though I, though I give my body, uh, to, to, do I give all I have to the poor, and sell all I have and give it to the poor? Though I give my body to be burned, I have not charity, it is nothing. And he, previous to that, he said, though I have faith to move mountains, and have not charity, it is nothing. And what Paul, again, is saying is the more excellent way is Jesus Christ in this regard. That Christ is the greatest expression of communication that has ever been. God has communicated himself to man through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that, go to Hebrews chapter 1. And the scripture literally states that he is the express image of his person. And in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, logos. The word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the implication of that statement is the divine expression. So Christ is the very divine expression of God the Father, personified in the flesh, and he is the more excellent way. And so we recognize that and we understand that in John, in 1 Corinthians 13, that Paul, again, is not talking about, okay, now you need to try to love people just like this. You can't love people like this. This is God's love to man, and the only way that that love can ever be realized through our lives is that we first possess this love, and then that love is being demonstrated through us, which is not a reproduction of this love, It is the genuine love of Christ being demonstrated through us. And so it's important that you recognize that as you consider this word agape, because agape is often used in describing God's love. I'm not saying it's limited to that, meaning only God's love to us, but it's also God's love in and through us. And so this agape is is 
the word that is John is translated beloved here in John's epistle in the English is agapitos, which again is part of agape or agapago. And so it's all part of the same family here of the meaning of the word. And so when he says beloved, what's important is that we understand John's use of the word beloved as he uses it these four times in this epistle is more than simply a casual greeting. In other words, think of it like this for a moment. And, and we have a tendency to do this. We have cliches and we have habitual speak and language, speaking and language that we use often. And for instance, we refer to each other, those who are part of the family of God, we often refer to each other, which is biblical, of course, but we refer to each other as brother or as sister. And if one professes Christ, we'll refer to them and say, hey, brother. And we do that kind of haphazardly, I'm afraid, sometimes just as a means of connecting or communicating. But let us understand, even with beloved here, if we were to say beloved, or if we were to say brother, we're really saying the same thing in this respect. Because the only way that we can call each other brother in the context in which we often use the term is based on the fact that we have been made part of God's family through God's love and provision in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we say brother, we ought to do so with meaning. We ought to do so with a, a godly uh, affection towards those to whom we speak in such a manner because they are professed and hopefully are brothers and sisters in Christ. So when John says beloved, he could have said brother, and it would have had the same significance in the sense of the, the foundation of the statement that is being made, that upon which the statement is based. And so when we, when we understand that this is more than a casual greeting, John is speaking to Gaius as when he says beloved or well-beloved, he is speaking to Gaius as a fellow recipient of God's love. Is that not what we're doing when we say brother, when we say sister? Aren't we basing that on the profession of faith that one has received the love of God in Jesus Christ, just as we have? And so this is significant. Even this word beloved is of tremendous value and significance as John is using it. And we have a tendency, again, to read these passages or read verses like this and just kind of dismiss the importance here because it's almost like we view it as though it's just merely a greeting, merely like saying, hey, hey, brother, but that's significant. If you can call someone, hear me for a moment, if you can call someone genuinely a brother in the context of being part of the family of God, there is nothing insignificant about that at all. That is significant that they have received the love of God, that you have received the love of God, and you now have a kindred spirit, the very spirit of Christ, because of this relationship and fellowship that you possess and share. And so it makes us that having that common bond in Christ. So this is an address to Gaius saying John is speaking, in other words, in a sense to Gaius as a fellow recipient of God's love and one who loved the Lord out of the love God had for him as John explained in his first general epistle. And by the way, interesting note here, Gaius, it's already been testified, we, re- we reviewed this just a, moment, just a moment ago, that Gaius has already testified, or John has testified of Gaius, and the church has tes- testified of Gaius, that Gaius had the truth abiding in him, and that Gaius walked in the truth in which that truth, the same truth that, uh, that was abiding in him. Point being this, while many may claim to be brothers or sisters... The life that is lived will testify as to the reality as John gives the eight tests in the first epistle. It will testify to the truth as to whether or not they've really received the love of God. Because remember something, to receive the love of God 
is to reciprocate love to God, but to reciprocate love to God is also to love that which God loves and to love those whom God loves. So if you are loved of God, you've received God's love in Christ, then it is going to be reciprocated back to God, and if it's reciprocated back to God, it will also be reciprocated back to those who God loves. And the evidence of that goes back to the test, love test that John gives in his first epistle, as we've studied some months back now. And the reality is that we see that John, and remember he even makes the statement in 1 John 4, I believe it is, he even makes the statement that how can you love God whom you've not seen, how can you claim that you love God whom you've not seen and not love your brother whom you do see? The point being, and how can you say you love God when you don't love truth? He says you're a liar, the truth is not in you. The point being, if God's love has been received by us, then that love is reciprocated back to him, but it's not just to him alone, it's also to what he loves, truth, and to who, those whom he loves, which is, of course, his body, family of God. And so this is going to be demonstrated in that capacity. In 1 John 4, 19, John says, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. That's a reciprocated love. Do you not understand that? I only love him because he first loved me. Had he not expressed his love in Christ, had he not bestowed his love unto me in Christ, I would not love God. I would only love me. <laughs> I would love me and me alone. I might show demonstrations of love to some degree to others, but ultimately my love would be for me. But if I love, if God has loved me, I cannot help but love him. I love him because, as a result of his love for me. And by the way, God has never loved someone because they loved him, ever. Because men do not love God, apart from God's love being given to them and demonstrated to them in the person of Christ. So it's interesting that the verb love, referring to our love for God, is the word agapigo, while the word love, referring to God's love for us, is the word agape. So agapio, which is the word for our love for God, but the God's love for us is that word agape. Then he goes on to say beloved. Not only beloved, but then he states, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. As indicated by the italicized words, John's command as translated actually reads the following manner. Follow not evil, but good. That's literally what's being stated here. Follow not evil, but good. The word follow literally means imitate. Now, when we think of the word imitate... We look at it from our understanding of the word today, and we often think of something that is counterfeited in reality. So we think of something that's an imitation. For instance, you know this as well as I, growing up, uh, my mother had in the cabinet or pantry, she had vanilla. But it wasn't really vanilla. You know what it was? Imitation vanilla. It wasn't really, why? Because the vanilla was a whole lot more expensive than the imitation vanilla, and that concentrate did the job. Maybe not as good of a job as the real thing would have done, but it did the job. It served its purpose. And it was imitation. It was not really the real thing, right? You think of things that are imitations, and you think of something that is a copycat or something that is 
is not the real thing, but similar to the real thing. And that's how we think of the word imitate so often. Or we think about someone, even a child, wanting to imitate their parent, or a son wanting to imitate his father, and he's just wanting to copy his father because he has respect for him, or he is impressed by his dad, right? So he wants to copy or follow after him in that respect. But this, however, is not what John means by the statement in verse 11 whenever he says, follow, not that which is evil, but follow that which is good. It is quite obvious that John's command is not a call to act in a superficial, nor is it a command to act in a hypocritical manner, but it is a command rooted in the teaching from the Old Testament. In Psalm 34, 14, we read, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Psalm 37, 27, Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. To follow or to imitate, as John declared in this text, is to depart from evil and to embrace that which is good. And this can only truly be accomplished as one denies self and pursues Christ. John made certain the truth of what he stated was not misunderstood by his following statement. So continue on reading in verse 11. He says, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good, or follow not evil, but good. And notice the next statement. He that doeth good is of God. But he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Notice that John explained, if one did good, quote-unquote, that individual was of God. This means that all good is from God. Are you following now? So, So notice, John is not saying imitate in the sense of saying try to act like Jesus would act. That's not what John is saying. He's saying, depart from evil, pursue good, pursue Christ. And he says, he that doeth good is of God. Why would he make such a definitive, absolute statement? Well, here's the reason why. Because no man is good, and no man can do anything that is good. Because remember something, we do not define what is good. God defines what is good. And so while we may view things as though this is a good thing for someone to do, in the sight of God it is not good at all. But last night in our class we even spoke of this, that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So what we call good is not good in the sight of God. And we don't have the right to define what is good when God is the very source of good. All good comes from Him and he alone is good. Remember when the, the man came to Jesus? And of course, this was a matter in which Jesus, of course, is explaining and calling the man out on his hypocrisy or on his, his attempt to, uh, to even uh, catch Jesus, if you will, as they often did, in, in, in entrapment. But remember when he says, uh, good master. Remember when he came to him and said, good master. Jesus said what? Why callest thou me good? There is only one who is good, and that is God. But yet, did Jesus not say, I and the Father are one? Here's what Jesus was saying to this man. He was saying, okay, you just called me good, but God alone is good, but you don't recognize me to be God. So why are you calling me good? If you don't see me to be God, then why are you calling me good? Because God alone is good, but yet now you just acknowledge I'm good, which means I am God. But yet you don't acknowledge me as God. So there's only one good. Jesus himself said that. Meaning God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit 
all good comes from the eternal Godhead. And so here he says, he that doeth good is of God. So depart from evil, pursue after righteousness, pursue after Christ, pursue that which is good. And here he's saying, follow, back to the verse, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. So follow not evil, but good. So imitate that which is good. But he's not saying imitate in the sense, again, of copycat or trying to impersonate or trying to counterfeit. Because the next statement says, He that doeth good is of God. All good comes from God. And again, I emphasize this truth to you. When you read statements like this, you might as well understand it to say, Follow not that which is evil, but follow that which is godly. Because if good comes only from God, then any good is defined in Scripture is godly or godliness. So here he's saying not pursue after what you call good, pursue after that which God has declared as good, which is therefore godliness. Not just your definition of good, subjective definition of good. So we see here, since all good is from God and of God, then he that doeth good is of God. Now, John has expounded this truth in his first epistle. Let's just review that for a moment. First John 2.29, he said, If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So he's saying Jesus is righteous, therefore anyone who does righteousness is born of him. Why? Because Jesus is righteous. 1 John 3, 5 through 10. And ye know that he, Christ, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Now let me stop here for a minute. Let, let me read on. I'll stop at the end of this verse. Whosoever commit or sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now, John has already stated in 1 John 1, 1 John 2, that 1 John 3, he's already, he's already made it very clear that we sin. Has he not? Even as believers. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins as believers, he is, those who are in fellowship with God, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then in, in chapter 2, in the first verse, he goes on to say, um, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. So here we're being told that we sin. And yet here in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, or in verse 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now, the context here is much different. Here John again is saying that when he says he that sinneth, it is the word that, that the meaning of the, the, the word here is that of one who is practicing lawlessness. So he's saying if one practices lawlessness, he is not of God. If one practices lawlessness, he has not seen God. And so he's talking about committing as in a continual action. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lays this out as well whenever Paul says so clearly that uh, do you not know that, that idolaters or fornicators and so on. And so, he lists this whole list of people, not sins, of the sinners themselves. And that's very important for you to recognize and remember because John is not saying, or neither is Paul saying, if someone commits a sin, that that's, that's proof he's not a believer. No, not at all. But if someone is living in this sin, that is the evidence that they are not a believer. That they are not the children of God. And hence, John calls them 
liars. <laughs> he just comes flat out and says that you can claim whatever you want, but if this is the reality and evidence of your life, you are a liar and you do not know God. That's pretty plain, isn't it? So again, I said to you, when we speak of beloved, as I began this evening in this portion of the study, when we say beloved, when John says beloved, this is a significant statement because John is saying to Gaius, the evidence of your life is one who has received the love of God, which is now reciprocated to God and reciprocated to the truth of God and reciprocated towards the people of God. So the evidence of your life is backing the testimony that, that you possess. And so here we see, he says in verse 7, Little children, let no man deceive you. Back to 1 John 3, 5 through 10. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Now again, i got to pause here for a moment because we dealt with this in length and great detail when we went through it in for our study of 1 John. But notice the emphasis here. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. What's the next statement? Even as he is righteous. So we are righteous even as he is righteous. Why would John state it in such a fashion? Here's why. Because the only righteousness that can come from us is his righteousness. So if righteousness is being produced through our lives, it is only because we now stand righteous just as Christ is righteous in his righteousness, or else there is no righteousness. He goes on to say, Verse 8, he that committeth sin is of the devil. Now, committeth sin. John's already said we commit sins. Has he not? If any man say he hath not sinned, then he's basically calling God a liar, and the truth is not in him. So John's not saying if a man commit a sin, in other words, if a man act in a sinful manner. The word committeth here is the same as that which is being conveyed and doeth righteousness in the previous verses. What he is saying is if a man practices lawlessness if the man's life is that of sin if he is given over to his sins then he's of the devil for the devil sinneth from the beginning continues on for this purpose the son of god was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil verse 9 then whosoever is born of god doth not commit sin doesn't mean we cannot act in a sinful manner whosoever is born of god does not practice lawlessness, does not live in sin, for his seed remaineth in him. Whose seed remains in who? God's seed, that being Christ, remains in us, and he cannot sin, cannot live in sin, because he is born of God. Again, John is not saying you cannot commit a sin. We know we're not perfect, right? We know that we still have a sinful flesh. We know we still have a sinful nature that exists with us. So John is in no way implying or stating that if, if, you, if you fall prey to any sin, then ah, there's the evidence you're not of God. He's saying if one continues to live in a lifestyle and practice of sin, then that is the evidence this person knows nothing of God no matter what he claims. Because if one is born of God... Seed of God dwells within him, and he cannot sin. Therefore, being born of God, we cannot practice sin because Christ is righteous, because Christ is pure, and he has sanctified us by his Spirit and continues the progressive work of sanctification in our lives. In this, he goes on to say, 
the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Hello? So here's the evidence. Here it is. Right in front of you, black and white. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. He that doeth not... Now we're moving from what? This is very interesting. Now John clarifies it even more so. Because he, first he's saying, oh, he that doeth righteousness is of God. He that practices sin is of the devil. Did he not just say that? So one who practices righteousness, not meaning working towards it, one who's living out righteousness is of God because we are righteous even as he is righteous, as Christ is, because we are righteous in him. That's what he's saying. Second, and he is righteous in us, he that doeth sin, he that committeth sin, he that practices lawlessness is not of God, but is of the devil, right? Actually, he just says is of the devil. But now look at what he says in verse 10. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. This has nothing to do with what you do. This has to do with one who is not practicing righteousness. So here's what John says. Notice, very, very distinct. John says, okay, so if you are doing righteousness, it's because you are of God and Christ who is righteous dwells in you and he is producing his fruit through your life. If you are living and practicing lawlessness, it's because you are of Satan. You are of your father, the devil, and therefore his works are being manifest through your life. But then he shifts gears and he moves from, because it's easy for someone to say, well, I don't really do that badly. I don't really do that much wrong, right? I'm not as bad as this person over here. No, notice what he says now. He that doeth not righteousness. Now he says, it's not only what you are doing, but if you are not practicing righteousness, it's because you're not of God. Because if you are righteous in Christ and Christ is in you, then righteousness is going to be a result in your life of the presence of the righteousness of Jesus Christ in you. So all those who are in Christ through the redemptive work of God do not continue or practice sin. Those who do practice sin have never seen Jesus or known Jesus for who he is. He is the Son of God, the Savior of mankind, God's holy, righteous, and sufficient provision for man. And notice what he says. We kind of went over this quickly, but let me go back to 1 John 3, 5 through 10 for just a moment. And notice verse 8. He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested for this reason, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Okay, so are the works of Satan still present in the world in which we live today? Ultimately, they will be destroyed. But here's what we see too. Those on, that ongoing work of Satan in the life of the unbeliever has been destroyed within the life of the believer. Satan and sin no longer have control over us. It doesn't mean we don't sin, but it's not because we're bound to sin and bound to the, uh, to the world and the power of Satan, who is the God of this world. Those who practice sin are not only wicked because they sin, but they sin because they are wicked. And in like manner, those who do practice or live in righteousness are righteous even as he is righteous or because he, Jesus, is righteous. And this is not saying that their acts of righteousness make them righteous, but that they act in righteousness because they are righteous in Christ. John explains this further, that the source of this righteousness is Jesus himself. Again, 1 John 3, 7, he that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he. He is righteous. The only way someone can continue in sinful practice is because they do not know the Lord Jesus. For it is Jesus who was sent by God to destroy the works of the devil or sin. And if one is in Jesus, then he cannot remain in sin. And if one is in sin or remains in sin, then he cannot be in Jesus. (laughs) 
And that's what John is saying. By the way, again, 1 John makes so clear, so clear, the superficial claims of so many who say, I love God, or I'm following after Jesus. It makes so clear. John makes absolute definitive statements that are unmistakable and irrefutable. Verse 12. Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself, yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself, yea, and we also bear record that ye know our record is true. So there's only two mentions in Scripture of someone by this name, Demetrius. The first is in the book of Acts, which, in which said Demetrius caused Paul problems in Ephesus. If you look at Acts 19, 24 through 28, we read, For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, and that's Asia Minor, of course, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods, which are made with hands." So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath, and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Considering Paul's interaction and comments concerning this Demetrius mentioned in Acts, contrasted to John's testimony of Demetrius mentioned in 3 John, there is really no reason to believe that Acts through Acts and Third John refer to the same man, just as Gaius. There's at least three or four Gaius or five Gaiuses in Scripture, and we do not see them interconnected necessarily. And so we see the same here with Demetrius. So let's look at this Demetrius. Verse 12 says, Demetrius hath good report of all men. Now the testimony of John concerning Demetrius agrees with the testimony that others had concerning Gaius, as John mentioned in his greeting to Gaius within this epistle, back to verse 3 of this epistle. For I rejoice greatly, John said, when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, speaking of Gaius, even as thou walkest in truth. And the testimony of Demetrius, which John now provides to Gaius, like that of Gaius, was not a self-professed testimony, but it is one which was testified of him by others. And it is in this very manner that the foundation of the testimony of Christianity began. And this is important because in the book of Acts, we find that record is provided of when people were first called Christians. In Acts eleven twenty six, and I won't read the entirety of the text, and we have dealt with this years ago through our study of Acts, but in Acts eleven twenty six, it says the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Notice this is a passive voice verb. It does not say the disciples called themselves Christians. But the disciples were called Christians. What did the disciples call themselves? Disciples. <laughs> but they were called Christians by outsiders, not by themselves. I would dare say, what, now they did embrace the term eventually. In 1 Peter 4.16 it says, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf, Peter says. But they referred to themselves as disciples or those of the way, even what have you. Yet it was the outside world who referred to the disciples of Jesus as Christians. And this name was given to the disciples due to the similarity in the disciples' lives and that of the life of Christ. 
So they were called Christians because Christian means little Christ or even Christ-like, you might say. And so when the world was looking at the life of these disciples of Jesus, their lives so much so imitated the life of Christ, or what we better yet say, emanated the life of Christ. That now... The world is saying that these people reminded them of Jesus Christ. John not only spoke of the testimony of Demetrius, among others, but also concerning the truth as others had testified of Gaius, as I mentioned. He goes on to say, Demetrius had good report of all men and of the truth itself. As it was stated of Gaius, the truth was in Demetrius, and Demetrius therefore lived in the truth. Those in whom truth dwells are given to the truth which dwells in them. And this is what it means to be Christian. Jesus Christ is the truth of God personified, and therefore all those in whom Jesus lives will also live in his truth. Truth is the foundation and truth is the life of all of those who are the disciples of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the scriptures teach us that the church is the very... espoused to be the bride, but concerning truth. The church is the very... pillar of truth! The church is the very pillar of truth! And so if the church is the pillar of truth, then truth obviously is foundational in relation to the church. Now, truth ultimately is Jesus. Jesus is truth. And so anything concerning that which comes from Christ is truth. And it's the foundation of the very disciples of those who are of Jesus Christ. And so the disciples of Jesus Christ, therefore, are given over to truth and given themselves to truth because truth is in them. And then John goes on to explain, yea, and we also bear record, and you know that our record is true. Speaking of Demetrius, while Gaius was obviously not personally an acquaintance of Demetrius, John was. And there is conjecture that Demetrius is even the one who carried this epistle to Gaius. That's not certain, but it's possible. Whether this is true or not, we know from John's testimony that Demetrius was a faithful brother and John deemed it necessary to commend such a brother to Gaius. John exhorted Gaius here to follow after good, which is to follow after God. And this was the testimony of Gaius and Demetrius. There is no greater testimony than when it is testified by those who know you that, first of all, the truth is in you, and that you walk in the truth. This, again, is the greatest testimony that truth is in you, and that you walk in the truth. Notice that's what John is emphasizing here concerning both Gaius and Demetrius. Again, when the, in Antioch, when they were first, the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians, this was not some uh, worldly tag of honor they were given them. But rather, in fact, isn't it interesting that Peter, that when you find the term Christian embraced by the church at all, it's in relation to what? suffering. (laughs) So if a man is to suffer because he is like Christ, then rejoice in this. That's what Peter is literally saying. 
If, if you suffer because the world sees you as though it viewed Jesus, then rejoice in that suffering. Which, by the way, we're going to look into any Philippians Sunday morning as we closed out this past week, the suffering of the believer. And so we understand that this is given unto us to suffer for His name's sake, for Christ's sake. And if we suffer for Christ's sake, if we suffer as a Christian, as one to which others are saying, this reminds us of Jesus, then you are blessed in that. Because your life is emanating the very life of Christ. And this is what it means to be a Christian. So the term Christian was not given to the believers as some badge of honor. And isn't it interesting how quickly people today, and I understand what they're saying, maybe in truth or maybe not, but how quickly people say, well, I'm a Christian. Maybe you should let someone else call you that. Maybe you should say, I'm a disciple, I'm a follower of Christ. And it'll be known soon enough whether or not you actually emanate the life of Christ. And people will be, be uh, quick to, to let that be known. So it's funny today that people self-identify as Christians as though that's what the early church did, and that's not at all what the early church did. The early church said, we are disciples of Jesus. We follow after him. Not saying in perfection, but we follow after him. And then the world says, oh yeah, you're a Christian. <laughs> you look like Jesus. But that was not a self-identified badge of honor. And today, you know what we find? We have people trying to convince other people that they are Christian because there isn't seemingly enough evidence in their own lives of the life of Christ being emanated in and through them to convince others that they are Christian, that they are Christ-like. So John here with Demetrius, he's saying to Gaius, and he testifies of the truth in Demetrius just as the truth was in Gaius. And the result is that Gaius walked in truth and Demetrius is of the truth as well. And John is testifying of that. And he is saying to Gaius, follow after good. Follow after God. Because God alone is good. So pursue after righteousness. Remember something. It is never... We... we do not do righteousness or righteously to become righteous. We do righteousness or righteously because we have been made to be righteous in Jesus Christ. God's work is always from the inside out, never from the outside in. Religion always says do good to become good. No. Christ is saying, I am good, I dwell in you, I produce that which is good. I work from the inside out, not from the outside in.